This is Medicine on the Frontier, a unique expeditions podcast hosted by Luke Whittle-Gillard and Matt Hans. Hello and welcome back to the podcast everybody. I'm so excited to be back myself, having been away on expedition for five weeks as a knowledge leader with the British Exploring Society. It was an incredible experience, we're going to talk about it in the future, but not today. As today we are getting back to the show and we have two amazing guests with us, Dr Matt Lee and Dr Lydia Potter. They're both junior doctors breaking into the expedition environment while also making sure they remain true stewards for our planet something that we on the show are massive supporters of. Before we start, though, I have some news. Since we released our pilot episode in July, in August while I was away, we released episode one. And if you haven't listened to it yet, please go give it a listen. But now we're ramping up. From today onwards, we're going to be releasing every fortnight on Monday mornings. Episode two and three are already recorded, and we have a load more episodes planned. From jungles to volcanoes and vast open deserts, we're going to take you on a journey around the world with some incredible people. Episode 4 will be the start of our new format, so stay tuned for that. And we also have a new mini-series starting soon, but I'm going to keep that under wraps for now. We have taken on and applied feedback, so if you have any for us, please get in touch. We want you to be involved and help us with this show. Help us choose where we take it. But that's enough of that for now. I'm excited. I hope you are too. So without further ado, let's get on to the show. Well, here we are. Hello, Matt and Lydia. How are you guys doing? Hi, Luke. Yeah, we're good, thank you. Yeah, doing all right. Still alive. Still surviving. Still surviving. That's the way. It's been a hot weekend. Have you both been working in hospital this weekend? Uh, yeah, I've been working in A&E this weekend. It has been pretty warm, so I've been having a cold shower when I get home. But um, yeah, all good. <laughs> yeah, I've actually had an, a week of annual leave and it's been lovely. Oh, that that is the life, Matt. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the life. Yeah, <laughs> that's that ex- that's that expedition life, isn't it? Well, welcome, guys, to the podcast. Uh, it's great to have you on here with us. Um, but first, you know, let's just talk a little bit about where you guys have come from. So, you're both doctors. You're both coming to the end of F two. But if we go all the way back to you coming to med school, how did let's start with you, Lydia? How did you go from joining med school to becoming an expedition medic was it something you wanted to do from the start um I think it's interesting question it's interesting to reflect back I think when I came to medical school I enjoyed being outdoors a lot but I don't think I had a particularly large amount of experience um uh you know I sort of was always active and sort of doing sports growing up but I hadn't really been on um any sort of big trips other than doing um sort of like Duke of Edinburgh up to gold type thing um so when I came to medical school um you know at university you meet so many more people than you do when you're at school you've got access to all of these different groups and societies um and I think both myself and Matt went to um uh, Cardiff University and I think we were really lucky to find the uh, Wilderness and Expedition Medicine Society um quite early on um in our in our time through medical school um so it's really really good society we have in Cardiff I'm a bit biased obviously um but we uh organized lots of different trips camping trips um teaching opportunities um mostly into sort of Brecon Beacons we used to do um overnight trips and um 
sometimes trips abroad. At the end of our first year of medical school, both myself and Matt went on a 10 day trip to the Lake District where we did loads of sort of like walking, camping, swimming, a bit of via ferrata, and that was incredible. So it was a really fun group of people who, most of which I'm still in touch with now. Um, so I think it was that that um, got me interested. And particularly um, during lockdown, there was a lot of sort of webinars from different different groups, different people. So I just got to hear lots of incredible stories, I think. And as I worked up through medical school, I became more and more interested in um, emergency and pre-hospital medicine um, and became more and more passionate about spending time outdoors and got a lot more experience um sort of like hiking climbing um you know just exploring outdoors more and I think the more I heard from people the more time I spent outdoors and the further I got through medical school the more I thought that this was really for me um so that's sort of where I was as as we were sort of finishing medical school and um Matt and I both um uh are a couple and live together and we wanted to be somewhere for our foundation years where we could really um sort of be around people with similar interests and um be outdoors a lot of the time so we went up to Snowdonia for our um foundation years uh which was really incredible because you're just surrounded by people that love uh hiking and climbing and being outdoors and lots of people with similar ambitions so um yeah that's been absolutely fantastic and that's sort of where we're at the moment amazing I mean can you for someone who hasn't been to university um, and for someone who's never, how easy is it to find these kind of wilderness medical societies? Are they, you know, I, I my view of university is all I've seen on TV. Okay. So it's kind of a little bit in between us um, mixed in with a little bit of kind of American uni college life. So I have absolutely no idea. Um, but is it, is it relatively simple to find? Is it, do you kind of, is yeah, how does it work? How does it work when you start there to find out where these med? Does every university have one? I guess is possibly my most important question. So I um, spent quite a lot of time with the Cardiff Wilderness Medicine Society and was president for a bit, so I do know a fair amount about it. I think most of the medical schools have one in some form or another, but some are a lot more active than others, and it's obviously difficult to sort of gain that larger group of people and you sort of need more people to be organizing more trips and um keeping it a sustainable group so i know particularly i'll get i'll get in trouble if i start listing but there's probably about <laughs> um, eight eight to ten really really big ones um but a lot of the medical schools i think we've got 31 medical schools in the uk it's probably not up to date anymore um i think probably at least 15 to 20 probably have um wilderness medicine societies I know particularly in Wales, there's definitely one at Cardiff and one at Swansea. Um, so, I mean, mostly if, if anyone listening is sort of headed towards university, if you go onto the um, University Students' Union website, there's normally a list of societies. And if there's no wilderness medicine or sort of expedition medicine group, um, there's often like hiking groups, climbing groups. And I, I think probably everyone here will agree that almost more important than the medicine when you're at um, at that junior stage is just getting outdoors and getting good skill sets and enjoying yourself is yeah absolutely I found to be sort of the best platform yeah I completely agree getting that ability to be with like-minded people outside um learning climbing skills from if you've never climbed before there's always going to be that group of people who, who have been climbing for a long time and you can unlock 
skill sets. You can unlock skill sets within your own community, and I think that's fantastic. And equally, I'm guessing the the, the medical societies are self-run. They're run by you guys as members. So it is students who are chairmen and things and who are organizing trips. So it really handles on the kind of people who came before you to see if, if they had a great setup for you guys to hop into um, and kind of yeah, continue absolutely. going. And we were really, really lucky in Cardiff that we had a fantastic um, group of students who were more senior than us, a lot of which I'm still really close friends with. A lot of them seem to have migrated up to Bangor to work there. So um, I actually work with quite a lot of um, of my old sort of student colleagues who, um, you know, when we were at medical school, they seemed so much older than me, the sort of students that were in third or fourth year when I was just in first year. And um, yeah, we're still really good friends now. So I'm very lucky in that regards. And when I was um, president of the society, I used to get quite a few messages from uh, students at other universities who were interested in setting up a group. And I think they sometimes found it quite difficult to get off the ground because organising an event's quite a lot of hard work. And if you've got a big group of motivated people, it's a lot easier because people help each other out and you can have um, different people sorting different events. So, yeah, we are lucky. And anyone listening, I'd just say, sort of, you know, you can reach out to um, local sort of clinicians with an interest. A lot of people are happy to help. And we had a lot of sort of visiting um, members um, who had graduated and gone on to do other things or people who were interested in the local area. A lot of the time, um, particularly doctors, but I imagine similar with sort of nurses, paramedics, other healthcare professionals, um, for our competencies as we um, advance as clinicians, we often need to have sort of logged teaching events. So um, often it can work both ways to have, have people visiting. Yeah. Fantastic. And Matt, how's your story kind of fit in with this? Oh, where to begin? Um, I took a bit of a different um, angle in all of the wilderness and expedition medicine side of things. So when I um, um, initially applied to university, I wasn't certain that medicine was the exact degree that I wanted to do. Um, and I thought about different things like marine biology, zoology, and I was weighing up for a long time between whether to do veterinary science or um, medicine. Um, but I'd integrated my work experience throughout my sort of school life because I knew that medicine was the most to make sure that I had some experience if that was what I decided to do. Um, and I'd done various other um, things like volunteer at a wildlife hospital. Um, which was a really just wholesome and satisfying experience. Once a week, you'd go to this little wildlife hospital and there'd be baby hedgehogs. Um, there'd be some like baby squirrels that you'd feed um, or bats. And you had to hand feed all of them um, to get them back to full health, all um, animals that were abandoned. So I took a lot of um, enjoyment from doing that side of things. Um, and I applied to medicine and I didn't get in the first time round. Um, which made me want to do it even more. Um, and in that year in between, I, in that year in between, I um, uh, decided that rather than um, take the option of working as a healthcare assistant and trying to build up experience that way, um, I wanted to sort of build up leadership um, skills in a different way. And so I trained as a ski instructor um and worked as a ski instructor in austria in st anton for five months um and that was 
absolutely terrified. Probably <laughs> I've ever done. Um, to begin with, anyway. Um, so I was. Um, uh, my sort of area was in the children's ski school, um, and in we did a four week training course, and I'd only done three weeks of skiing before I went and did this training course. So I was <laughs> definitely pushing myself way beyond my limits. True baptism um, by fire. I love it. Real baptism by fire. And in the first proper week of work, um, I was, we had a group of, I think there were four instructors between 21 or 22, one and a half, uh, two and a half to three year olds. Oh, tottering out, um, carrying skis that were literally the size of them and falling over. And one of the main instructors turned to me and was like, right, okay, so um, you seem like um, you're fairly switched on. If any of these kids go missing, it's your fault. And <laughs> I thought to myself, oh my God, what have I got myself in for? Um, and I survived. It's all right, though. They can't go that far. <laughs> surprised you <laughs> hopefully they were all in bright colored jackets <laughs> i mean the handy thing about skiing um ski resorts in general is like they're they are all in bright colored jackets so if one goes missing inevitably a stranger picks them up and takes them to the nearest ski school i personally never lost a child um and I'm quite proud of that but i know that others um found their child later on in the day when they captured them. <laughs> those who shall not be named you're going to put anyone listening off um bringing their children to san anton um, but it was a really good experience and um uh, really rewarding um so that that's where sort of my outdoor skills started developing um and i'd gone on this um course before medical school called medlink which is um sort of the introductory uk wide um it's an event held in um, i think it was nottingham at the time and it was basically to give medical students a flavor of uh, school students a flavor of what medical school was like and there was someone there that spoke about wilderness and expedition medicine as a job um and it really appealed to me i, I didn't realize that was it. um so then when i went into university i um, sort of also got involved in the wilderness um medicine society um and got involved in a um, couple of other things as well i um i did a couple of long distance treks during my time at uni i did the horse route with a couple of friends um and i did the west highlands way with lydia which despite it being in the uk is one of the most difficult walks i think you can do the contours are very deceiving we were a bit optimistic with um the time we took for it um and it was it all of that sort of gave really good outdoor experience that helped with deciding what to do with regards to the wilderness medicine side of things um and i enjoyed it so it makes sense really to um combine something you enjoy with what your job is and that's how i've ended up doing more and more uh, yeah expedition medicine stuff that's not the only thing you're doing is it Matt? Yeah, I was going to say, where you where you headed, Matt? What's the you've taken all this stuff now? You've you built up a good experience of kind of being outside. Obviously, very good at herding children. Um, you know, exceptionally uh, 
kind of driven towards this. But what is the goal? Where where is your expedition medicine taking you, or what do you want to use it towards in the future? Because it's not a particularly kind of standard story, is it? No, it's not a standard story at all. And I think what's amazing about it is there are so many different avenues that you can use the skills in expedition medicine for. Um, so you can do the sort of fun trip activities like um, going away to Norway and playing about on snowmobiles, but also you can use the very same sort of set of um, thinking outside the box skills in humanitarian and um, sort of disaster zones. You can use them. Uh, so I'm I'm particularly interested in um, sort of sustainability and healthcare and the impacts of climate change. So you can use those skills for scientific research um, expeditions, um, and also it can just be a nice way to keep your enthusiasm up about medicine and to sort of drive your passion even in hospitals um thinking outside the box in hospitals rather than um sort of going down the same structures on occasion um i i can think of an example where we had um um some someone fell on a ward and had a lot of bleeding from um a head injury and we went through the whole sort of direct pressure um in well you can't do indirect pressure really on a head injury that ends up you, you could try um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> might end up in court <laughs> i don't think pressing on a carotid artery would um do me any yeah, favors yeah yeah kneeling on people's um, necks never looks good in the pictures afterwards yeah i agree no, <laughs> and a, an effective um, method of bleeding control I though <laughs> mm, that's true um it it makes airway and breathing a bit more difficult though um yeah so i i ended up um thinking well we use sea locks dressings in sort of wilderness and medicine skills do we have any sea locks in the department uh, obviously no we didn't have sea locks in the general ward department but um i went down to a and &E and they had a couple of dressings that they'd never even opened um and didn't know were there that they were part of the stock got one of those and it stopped bleeding within minutes so it's almost sometimes um, the skills sort of jump out at you that you don't realise um, are, are going to be useful in hospitals. And again, with all the communication side of things, just building a good rapport with the whole team. Um, it, like the multidisciplinary team is something that's so core to um, a working hospital environment. And it's um, when you're out on expedition, you have a multidisciplinary team. You've got a medic you might have an, another medic but then you'll also have the team leader you'll have all of the um sort of the clients on the expedition um you might have people that are particularly involved in the cooking and it's about working together and not thinking that any one job is above your skill set um because you need to be taking part in all of the cleaning the cooking the washing up the guiding the navigating and it's all um sort of taking that mindset into a hospital environment is only a good thing. Yeah, no, it is. I think um, you really touched on something that's that's really important with expedition medicine there, and that is that you are way much more than just a medic, right? You're, way just, you're so much more than the guy who carries the med kit and knows what's inside it, because everything you've said, and I think what was really interesting through when both of you explained your journey towards where you are today, 
is that most of that time has been spent outside just doing this stuff for real. You know, being outside, adventuring, traveling, walking, skiing, all of those elements. Because what it gives you when you come into the expedition medicine setting is a background that you can delve into, a background of skill sets where you've been on many camping trips together. You understand that personal admin, looking after yourself, looking after your buddy. Um, and those elements never go away on expedition because, as you mentioned, you know, you, you've got to be able to delve into every part. You have to be able to light the fires, cook the food, help clean up, as well as be the medic. Um, because as an employment side or from an employment perspective, that is extremely valuable to someone like me as an expedition leader to have a medic who is so much more than just a medic. Um, because with everything that we take on expedition, and the medic is one of those pieces of equipment we take with us, they have to be multi-purpose. We have to save weight. Um, we have to be able to save on equipment. And if you can have one piece, you know, or one item, which is my expedition medic, which is so much more than just a medic, that for me is a massive boost in value to um, to my team because I haven't added a client to my list of people I have to look after who also happens to be a doctor or a paramedic. I've added a team member who is you know incredibly proficient in many other elements. Um, so I think that's really the right mindset to to have when we move forward with um, with an expedition medicine career is you know really having a rounded skill set and never stop trying to continually improve those on the outside of the the kind of view skill sets that maybe wouldn't particularly delve in if you were just to say i want to be an expedition medic you potentially wouldn't come across those skill sets um but it does make you incredibly valuable it really does um so i guess what's next lydia what's next we've we've had the backstory where are we heading what's the dream yeah so uh i think that so at the moment we're coming close to the end of our F2 year both of us um, and at the moment um, I've been uh, I am keen to sort of have a career in a clinical career in emergency medicine um, so eventually training in emergency medicine long-term aim would be to dual training um, with pre-hospital emergency medicine I love being outside of a hospital environment and I really like the challenge of having to think outside the box when you're with someone sick and um, treating someone when you're maybe um, outdoors or you're in an unusual environment, um, you know, someone's fallen in a, in a building site or someone's become poorly in a bathroom and you have to think about, um, you, you know, you're with this smaller team, really good communication, um, lots of exciting stuff. So, yeah, eventually, clinically, um, emergency medicine and pre-hospital emergency medicine, but I'm certainly in no sort of rush to rush through training um next year i'm taking a f3 year um i'm doing a very part-time <laughs> clinical fellow job in um bangor um, which is a mix of pediatrics and um emergency medicine um just to get a bit more confidence in children and do a bit more of what i love but um you know the reason why i picked a 50 percent job was because of everything i want to focus on outside of work um, so that includes um, both myself and, and Matt are um, crew members of the RNLI um, and gain some amazing sort of search and rescue experience. And um, the skills that we've developed through that, I think, have, have been so useful, particularly communication skills, because when you're out on the water and it's like blowing a hoolie and there's spray in your face and it's dark, 
you have to have such good clear communication skills and you know using the radio and um search patterns and you know there's so much and it's just really really fun so uh continue developing on that um i'm also sort of part way through doing my mountain leader award um so i want to finish that in my spare time improve my climbing um and just enjoy being in north wales to be honest um but then aside from that you know um I'd like to spend the year, you know, continuing to teach on some of the UK-based expedition medicine courses. Um, sorry, uh, unique expedition yeah. um, courses, uh, which I really enjoy, and that's like a fantastic way to meet like-minded people and um, get the sort of pleasure of teaching motivated students. Um, and then outside of that, um, doing some more um, events and expeditions um, across, you know, UK and abroad. So my first trip is um a coast to coast um crossing of Iceland in August. Nice. Um so there's a, a group of clients with a company called Rat Race that are travelling from the north coast to the south coast of Iceland um by it's split part cycling, part um hiking and part rafting. Um so I'm really excited to be uh, covering that. Um there's nothing else sort of like in the pipeline at the moment but um Hopefully, as the year progresses, I'll be able to get on um, more sort of um, expedition trips away. And hopefully, you know, I've, I feel like at this point, um, clinically, having completed F2 and in terms of my outdoor experience, like I feel ready to, you know, go out and do some more challenging yeah. stuff. Because at the moment, the, the main part of my experience is sort of event has been mainly event medicine rather than expedition medicine. Um I've covered quite a few UK-based ultramarathons, yeah. some in Europe, um, and some sort of like sporting events, festivals, things like that. But no sort of big expeditions. So, how do you feel the um, how do you feel the contrast is then between working as a true expedition medic and being an event medic? Um, well, it's difficult to say because obviously I've only really had experience of um, of event medicine rather than sort. Of to expedition medicine as you sort of put it I think the main difference is is that for events in general you've got a, a really big set of clients um so some of the ultra marathons that I've covered in the UK for example will have like hundreds and hundreds of clients running a sort of say 50 mile route um and you'll have a big team of of medics um and it's normally quite varied there's often some senior clinicians, uh, nursing staff, paramedics. They sometimes have like podiatrists and stuff yeah. as well because um, feet get pretty manky <laughs> on events like that. Um, and uh, normally some staff with access to a vehicle so they can sort of pick clients up on the way. And then you have these checkpoints and most of the part you're not travelling with the team. You're at checkpoints and you're seeing people when they come in. So you're not necessarily having to think about um, your own sort of kit on your person because you might be at a checkpoint where you've got access um you know to have like large volumes of medical kit so some of these events for example would have you know like a defibrillator yeah. at each checkpoint and um you know like several bags of fluids and, and bags of hot water bottles and, and things for the events where people are at risk of hypothermia um so i think 
just more structure really and and um a larger medical team so i think for most expeditions it's normally a single um doctor unless the clientele is quite big or you're at particular sort of risk and then you might have more than one clinician you're traveling with the group so you need a lot more experience in terms of your personal admin your fitness your ability to to be a member a bit more of a member of the team rather than um uh being slightly separate um so i think that's what i'm really keen to do and um and start doing this year i think that's a perfect progression and it really is it's just an addition of extra um, responsibility isn't it it's the responsibility increases vastly even though the amount of clients shrinks dramatically um you end up with that kind of complete responsibility for a group of 12 15 20 people for the duration of 10 days um Mm. and that like you say having those having those skill sets in place that allow you to operate as as an expeditioner yourself um really frees up the mind to be able to focus on the the team medicine of the group you're with Uh, without that skill set from before actually you can be somewhat blinded to what's going on around you because of the fact you you're so busy trying yeah, to fix absolutely. all the your own problems yourself um and i think it's that sort of personal fatigue as well and the fact that you're you're on the move you're also exerting yourself um you know you've got to fit in your role as a as a team member but also as a member of the sort of leadership team with responsibility is a bit more you know on the events we'll do a, a brief and talk about um you know, like feet hygiene and keeping um, hydrated and taking electrolytes and talk through the sort of um, safety procedures of the event. But you're not actually there with them continually, yeah. say, um, re- you know, remind them of these things and identify people that are struggling. And often, you know, people come through the checkpoints and look horrific. And uh, then, you, you know, uh, we'll have people that are super sick, vomiting lots, and you think, well, you've obviously not kept up to date with your you you know you've let yourself get too hot or you've not kept up to date with your fluids but I think it's been really really good ex- experience particularly as a sort of senior medical student and a very junior doctor doing events like this um working with people with more experience than you and treating things like um hypothermia hyperthermia dehydration um uh you know like dilutional hyponatremia and um, people that are um, vomiting and sore and sore knees and things like that just the common stuff when people are exerting themselves a lot Um, it's been really 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 good experience invaluable but um, I think my main interest lies in expedition medicine rather than event medicine but it's certainly been an excellent step yeah, um, and I would definitely recommend um, what a great stepping stone it is in their junior years absolutely I mean we see a huge amount of of our clientele through unique expeditions doing exactly that event medicine is something that's um this kind of deep in the in the heart of expedition medicine you know anybody who's doing expedition medicine, we all know full well as much as we'd love to be on expedition all the time um the job opportunities to work full time as an expedition medicine or expedition medic are relatively mm. slim. You can be super lucky and land yourself a job on a, um, yeah, a, a, a scientific exploratory boat that's traveling around. You know, you can get lucky. You certainly can. But the reality is, is that we're going to have to keep building this skill set all the time, making ourselves more employable, keeping up to date. And the event medicine is perfect. Like you say, you're seeing stuff 
much more often than you would see in an expedition setting, which is growing that confidence. Yeah. Um, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, for example, I had a, um, a patient in A&E recently um, who came in with heat exhaustion and looked like super poorly in, in one of the A&E departments where I work, um, was like really tachycardic, really, really hot, didn't quite um, meet heat stroke um, uh, definition, um, but was certainly really poorly. And I think quite a few of the staff were a bit um, bit stressed out about it in, uh, in the hospital because her observations were horrible, like really, really tachycardic, um, looked very unwell. Um, but I've seen heat exhaustion quite a few times and um, people were talking about, you know, do we need to put the fluids in the fridge and then get the fluids? And um, I uh, made them take off their clothes, put them in, not all of their clothes, take off their T-shirt and leggings, dunk them in the sink and then made them wear it, wear them again. And they, within like yeah. 20 minutes, were normothermic again. And I think that comes from doing yeah. event stuff. Um, because there's some things like in hospital, because you're in that structured environment and you think, oh, everything needs to follow a guideline and everything needs to be, um, uh, you know, based off the resources that we have in hospital. Sometimes when you see things that actually can just be treated in a in a way that allows you to step outside the box a bit. And um, yeah, it worked really well. And I think there's definite um, benefits to in hospital yeah, clinical. I work completely as well. agree. I think that's all you were talking about, wasn't it, Matt? Yeah, was you know we talk with uh, about jungles and throwing people in rivers, and that's how you call it. There's no fridges in the jungle or in the Arctic. You're throwing them in the river. Mm, You're throwing yeah, exactly. them in the lake. Um. So Matt, what about you? Is it is event medicine taking care of you know blisters and and aches and pains and people that you've seen them five or six times on this event and they're still not listening to your advice? Is that the same thing for you, or have you avoided uh the feet? Um. So, so I guess the things that I've done have been um, slightly different. Um, so a couple of um, couple of years ago, I was in Fiji um, working on uh, as a medical volunteer with a um, group that was supporting a a long distance multidisciplinary race. So similar to um, the last group. Wait, wait, hold on, was, Matt. So you're telling me uh, that your work is in Saint Anton in Austria and on the tropical island of Fiji. I'm he- I'm seeing a pattern here of of beautiful places, and probably you know a bit more fun than work. What's going on? <laughs> um, yeah, I like to have fun. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess at, at that stage I was um, definitely not as skilled as I say I would be now. Um, I was a medical student and I was taken on in a volunteer capacity, so I was much more the helping hand, the one that went and got things for the doctor and paramedic that I was with at the time. Um, and yeah, feet feet were definitely an issue, but if, I think within event medicine as well, you've got so many different um, different types of event that you can mm, work okay. with. It, it's not just event medicine or mm. expedition medicine. Um, so like event medicine covers things like music festivals where you're effectively just testing um, people's drugs to see if they are what they say they are but then it can extend right the way through to these um, multi-day sporting events that are 
either sometimes completed by professional athletes who often have more of an awareness of what their body can take, but also um, a lot of these ultramarathons now um, are taking on a, a lot more less experienced athletes that are coming through, and those are almost the ones that you need to watch even more closely. So depending on the hundred <laughs> percent type of event itself. Um, you've got um, a different scope of what you can do. And then you've got the other extreme. I volunteered at the Commonwealth Games last year um, as a field of play medic, and both myself and Lydia have applied for the um, Olympic Games next year um, to try and volunteer as uh, a medic on those. And within that field, it's an even, like within the professional sporting field, it's different again. Um, so these professional athletes they have trained for four years to compete in this event and their mindset is completely different like they will almost break their bodies in order to make sure that they finish yeah. a race mm. not necessarily even win but they finish that race um and some of these events like with the commonwealth games um you have tv cameras so everything that you do is being watched recorded by the world's media the world's press mm. And if you drop someone off a stretcher, you're going to look very silly and you're probably not going to be asked back in the future. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that comes down to like um, what we were saying about communication, isn't it, Matt? Because, yeah. Um, yeah, I've covered a few football matches for Cardiff City and they're all televised as well. And I've always sort of lived in fear of like going onto the pitch and doing something stupid. Um, but I think like you say, Matt, it's just like, keeping calm, having familiarity and not letting yourself be phased by things. And that's what I think experience like this gives you. What you also need to have is an awareness of what different sporting disciplines, um, rules and regulations are, um, which is something that I haven't considered. Um, For instance, if you're um, uh, doing some medicking for a boxing match, um, if you touch the competitor, the competitor gets disqualified so any sort of assessments that you do have to be non-contact whatsoever you can only like talk to them from the side and only after their coach or their referee has invited you onto the field of play so you could like it it wouldn't be unusual well particularly in boxing to see someone collapse onto the floor um potentially lose consciousness and you as the medic are not allowed anywhere near them until you've been yeah. all clear technically trains professionals but that's the part that's the nature of the sport and it's a new yeah events are weird like that um i as a student i did a bit of film set cover and i was told if someone's injured you have to get permission from costumes to take off their costume to examine them properly oh wow um so i had someone that was dressed in this like really elaborate costume um as a witch on his dark materials and they were complaining of like um, shoulder pain after doing a stunt and I had to get permissions from costumes to get them to like take it off to examine them so yeah bizarre the different things and different pathologies and different sports like spoken to people that have covered cycling races and they do a lot of like bum blisters and... yeah. yeah do you know my my only experience of a event medicine is um, I once got asked to cover the trans New Zealand enduro um, mountain bike race um, and it was a friend who was running the event and I came out and the medicine side of it, 
I was more than happy with. I was assisting in a very similar scope to you assisting Martin Fiji and things. I had paramedics with me. I had doctors with me. But what I did have was this kind of wilderness experience, which they lacked. I was not aware that I was going to have to cycle the Trans-New Zealand Enduro myself with a medkit <laughs> behind these groups. Now, I, I can ride a bike. Um, and I would, at that point, before arriving, would have said I was relatively competent on a mountain bike and had dabbled in a little bit of downhill and understood what I was doing. I must admit, I think I was possibly the largest casualty of the entire event because it was just so incredibly exhausting <laughs> to follow behind these guys and have this insane adrenaline rush. I mean, I remember being in Alexandria uh, on the South Island and the route was literally pink dots sprayed onto rocks, which then just disappeared off the horizon. And that was the idea was that was the line and you were supposed to be following God. the line and you just had to trust that if you were on the dots, you were going to land on the next rock, which was sick. You know, I probably had about 47 stitches um, in hands, elbows, forearms that we had to do quietly on the side to patch up me as the medic so that we could keep going and looking after the people. Um, <laughs> and that was it. That was a complete and utter lack of experience in, you know, that theatre of sport. I had no idea really what I was letting myself in for. The um, the medicine was fine. The The environment was fine. It was just me in that environment was the problem um i had had you know nowhere near enough experience um in doing it so it is easily done it's super easily done to sign up for something you think you've got it all in the box and then you get there and like you say you jump into a boxing ring all of a sudden you have this huge faux pas and now this poor guy's been disqualified because you didn't you weren't experienced yourself so yeah i think having that huge multidisciplinary um experience is really really important to um especially to get yourself jobs you know we all want to make money we have to survive um, as we move forward so picking up these cool little medic jobs here and there is great um, and what a great way to build that experience as well for um, for the future mm. yeah it's also just really fun isn't it, it is. yeah, that's but... why we're all here baseline is baseline reason is just it's so much fun but it is hard work it's not St Anton and Fiji all the time just to clarify you know it's, it, it's <laughs> not always you know, it, was very like... hard work. it wasn't all fun Ah, uh, I think there's quite a lot of clubbing going on. In Thanks to Defa. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but no, it, it, and it is an interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, you know, you also don't want to get on the wrong side of a boxer if you've you know had him disqualified or had her disqualified from her yeah. from her bouts. You know, that's not the patient that I want coming after me at the end of the night. Um, but you know, there's, you know, we've talked about going out into the world, and we've talked about the fact that there is you know, so many beautiful and exciting places, whether it's New Zealand and, you know, I, I wouldn't even want to imagine, and I can mountain bike to a, a basic sort of standard of proficiency, but man, that sounds stupid. Um, but I we was. do have to think about where we're going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, no, no surprises. But, you know, like, it sounds like a cool adventure, so why wouldn't you want to say yes? But I definitely want to get some more experience. But when we're... In these environments, you know, we've got to think about the the impact that we're having on, uh, you know, on our planet and on the people that we're that we're going there to take care of. Also, the people that live there for the other three hundred and sixty four days that that event is not going on. Uh, and Matt, you know, you you briefly touched on the fact that you're into sustainability and in, in healthcare. It's a bit more than that, 
Um, do you want to tell us a bit more about what you do with sustainability uh, and sort of the impact that you see health? I'm just going to add before planet? Matt starts, because when you said that, this is an audio platform, so for the people listening, Matt's little face lit up so much when you led in that segue. To, um, <laughs> so I know he's ready. So The hand oh, went so up. Ready. He was like, yes. Um, <laughs> well, what I will say is make sure that you stop me if I start rambling because <laughs> I'm prone to this. Um, yeah, no, so I, I'm interested in, I am interested in sustainability and healthcare and I'm um, the sustainability lead for Doctors Association UK. Um, and um, when, when you're asking the questions earlier about what I want to do over the next um, little while, part of what I want to do, I think, is going to be doing more of this sustainability um, work. I'm waiting on a job in sustainable healthcare in North Wales currently. Um, so yeah, recently, a job, um, with Matt, Matt, just explain that. So a job in sustainable healthcare in North Wales, is that a, a clinical job or is that a sort of admin changing the face of medicine job? Yeah, so it's, it, it is more administrative, but I almost wouldn't say that it should be classed as an administrative job. Um, so what, what I'm hoping the role will involve is me getting very much involved in um, sort of quality improvement projects um, that have a sustainable um, theme to it. So whether that's reducing the numbers of cannulas used in the emergency department, um, reducing the number of the amount of nitrox used in uh, anaesthetic gases, or whether um, we can reduce the number of surgical instruments that are being used. Um, right the way to more simple things like uh, reducing screen brightness on computers um, and just reducing the amount of paper. Um, and what I'm hoping my role will do will um, sort of connect the clinical aspects of all of that with the managerial aspects of running a hospital and running a, um, a health board so that we can not only advocate for um, better environmental practices on the shop floor, but also um, in um, uh, from a man managerial level as well. Um, so yeah, over the past um, few months, I've been working with another organization called Zero Hour um, with regards to um, advocating for something called the Climate and Ecology Bill. Um, and that's legislation that's in parliament at the moment um, that aims to halt and reverse biodiversity loss in the UK by 2030, um, which is a monumental task, to say the least. Um, we've lost 97% of our wildflower meadows. Um, we have 15% of our species um, on the threatened and endangered list in the UK. Um, we have already lost 2% of our species that have gone extinct from the UK altogether. Um, so we're fighting an uphill battle on that, um, and one of the mechanisms we can do that is through um, legislative change. So we wrote a letter to Steve Barkley. We're still awaiting a response from him, um, calling for his support for this bill for the sake of public health. Um, and we had a couple of days in um, Parliament meeting various MPs. Um, we also took part in the Extinction Rebellion protests um, over the weekend, which were a very peaceful, um, almost family-friendly community atmosphere event um, where people were just sharing knowledge and ideas and 
just generally trying to make the world a better place. Um, and I'm going to be taking that role forwards for the next 12 months as well, hopefully. So we'll see what additional changes happen. Fantastic. That sounds amazing. I think it's one of those things of, um, uh, you know, for people that don't know, uh, the committee uh, of Paris COP, as, the, as they, they sorted it down, you know, it's now COP28 this year. Uh, that's happening in Dubai. Uh, but there was COP15 and there's lots of different committees, which it makes it all very confusing for anyone that doesn't sort of study this full time like, like Matt does. Um, but there, there was the biodiversity agreement, which was signed uh, at the end of last year as well at COP15. And these are big steps and you know, they are big goals. You know, 2030, you know, with the impact of uh, of COVID, you know, I don't know if we're going to be able to, to meet these sustainable development goals that you know were set out in 2016. You know, it's, it's halfway now. Um, so Matt, where do you see sort of the impact of doctors? And I think stakeholder engagement has always been a massive challenge for, for any of these projects to really come to life and to come to a, a completion. You know, you're talking about all these amazing projects and we all see this in A&E or, or on an ambulance or you know, just in day-to-day living. The way that we use tech or, or our supplies is often second to us actually completing the task and what's easier. So how do you see building stakeholder engagement within the NHS, within doctors, within healthcare, uh, as you know, a challenge, and, and how are you going to combat that? Yeah, it's it's one heck of a challenge because what you're trying to do is you're trying to change people's mindsets and um, people's views on um, what healthcare is, what being a doctor is, what being a health professional is, um, and. I guess what we need what we need to consider really is you've got two options either you voluntarily make this change um to start considering the environment in your healthcare practices or the change is forced upon you by the environment and those really are the two avenues um so we've already seen um in the UK how climate change is forcing itself into the NHS Last year, we had 3,000 excess deaths because of the heat waves, um, we've, and that's excluding all of the electrolyte imbalances, the worsening heart failures, um, the poor diabetes control, the um, pressure ulcers that aren't taken into consideration in those statistics because those people survived, but they suffered for the, those extreme temperatures. We've got thirty to forty thousand premature deaths caused by air pollution um, every year in the UK. We've got um, antimicrobial exist, uh, resistance that is being exacerbated by climate change because of higher temperatures causing a faster bacterial turnover rate. But also because we're using antimicrobials on livestock um, to feed humans, um, and because we're having more livestock, that leads to deforestation and um, damages the natural environment with respect to that um, and then of course we've got all of the refugees that are going to be coming our way I mean if the UK government is concerned about 40,000 that are crossing the channel every year at the moment then wait until it sees that I think is it between one and three billion um, of the work uh, people across the world are going to be refugees by 2050 and where are they going to come from as well you know it but they're coming from everywhere. That's the thing. They're coming from everywhere. It's yeah, like the world it, it is shrinking. It, it's huge. But it could be. But it could be us having to migrate somewhere else as well, isn't it, Matt? It's not just we are an island, 
and you know the impact of rising sea levels the impact of deforestation is going to affect us just as much yeah and and that's a really good way of thinking about it that the world is shrinking um we're we're like it is such a beautiful place but when um projections suggest that most of spain might become desert by 2050 then we're thinking as far off as that and that's all well and good saying that spain's going to become a lot hotter and a lot drier but think about all the countries below that they're going to be even hotter and even drier and already we see droughts that are happening um famines crop failures I mean, we get a lot of our food produce from Spain and those crops are failing currently because of the intense heat that they're experiencing. Um, so it, the habitable areas around the world are going to become less and less. And we need to be doing what we can now as health professionals to try and mitigate this, to minimise the damage that's happening. Because if we don't, health professionals are going to be the one dealing with the refugee crisis not in Calais, not in Greece, the refugee crisis of the UK's coastal populations being flooded and moving inland, the ones across the rivers that have their houses washed away, the wildfires that happened that happened in yeah. London last year that we have to deal with. Yeah, we or, or Scotland two weeks ago. Yeah, biggest wildfire in the UK. I mean, can I just put a bit of a negative spin, Matt? Yeah, because the, the thing is, is it's it's pretty bad, isn't it? You know, we're all we're all a bit late to the party, aren't we? To be fair, and I'm definitely as guilty as that. It's, it's pretty bad. It's the state of affairs bad. we are now, when we're talking about these dates, you know, in the 1980s when we talked about 2050, it seemed an entirely different world away. But actually, it's not. Actually, these dates we're talking about. I mean, last time we spoke, Matt, you in laid a little piece of information on me about my beautiful uh, northern ice caps up here. They could potentially be gone in the next ten to fifteen years, and we could be ice free in the uh, in the Arctic. You know, we've we've had, if if we look back through history, we've had rising sea levels. We've lost vast amounts of land. We know that you know there's these huge areas that were once pathways from country to country that are no longer there. Um, if we shrink again, you know, if we lose these coastal towns, if the the center, you know, the center mass of what is currently farmable land is no longer farmable um, and becomes arid, you know, that's a huge displacement. That is a monumental displacement of humans who are now going to have to learn to share and learn to work together from huge cultural indifferences, you know, potentially lands that have, have warred against each other for generations. We really need to pull our socks up as human beings and and learn to accept this fate because no matter what we do now, we're not going to undo this damage. We can just dampen it. I'm guessing. Yeah, I think I think you met you raised some really interesting points. There's um, I'll come on to the there's nothing we can do aspect in just a moment, but um, when you talk about um, people living together like the biggest issue well one of the biggest issues that we have in the uk currently mm. is inequality isn't it um uh, so we've got a growing disparity between those that are wealthy and those that are struggling and using food banks and whatnot and unfortunately when you um have a reduction in resources available those inequalities widen um and those that have the wealth are going to be able to sort of buy up the remaining food and still live the luxury lifestyles that they once whereas those that are 
um, already financially struggling are going to be struggling even more. Um, and it's very much the the climate solving the climate crisis solves so many other issues as well. It means that communities start reforming. It means that we have a natural world that people can enjoy and look out on. Um, it improves, um, uh, like we know that nature connectedness um, correlates with good personal well-being and good mental health. Um, it reduces disease burden. Like there are so many positives to solving the climate crisis. Um, and a phrase that I, I like, um, I saw in one of the newspapers, one of the cartoons, um, was ba it basically said, "What if we create a better world and it's all for nothing?" Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it speaks for itself, doesn't it? Um, but let me talk just a little bit about um, that concept of it's all too late because it's not and what is really really important it's quite interesting um sort of from a psychological aspect but actually there's this concept of climate humorism and climate humorism is the thought that the world's going to end um it's all going to get really hot and it's all going to get really bad and there's nothing we can do so what's the point um now that mindset is almost as challenging if not more challenging to combat than climate denialism which is basically saying climate change doesn't exist and these fluctuations have been happening for millennia um which they may well have been but humans cannot have never survived at um, temperatures of this um global level um and so really what we need to what we really need to focus on is focus on these people that are saying oh what's the point in changing my habits because it won't make a difference every increment of a degree will make a difference it might mean the difference between an extra few tons of ice that don't melt that mean that maybe a coastal town is actually saved it might mean that air temperatures are survivable and not uh, in, in greater parts mm. of the world rather than um, fewer it might that actually we save quite a few species because of our actions and it's not a binary thing that we either are successful or we're not it's about how successful we're going to be and how successful we want to be i want to be as successful as we can I, I think if i wasn't talking to you about all of this now i wouldn't um truly believe that we could do anything about it but i do genuinely believe that we can make change we can make a difference and we can preserve what we still have but we just have to do a hell of a lot more and matt it's an interesting point because it's the, the climate doomerism is something which has been around since you know late 20th centuries when it really started to, to come about because that's when we had this sort of idea of you know al gore's the inconvenient truth i think really captivated it for me which is these are global problems that we have to see at a global level, but also at a local level. And you can't just solve it internally within your own country or community. You have to look abroad because we are a population of, of going on 8 billion people. So we have to help each other. But also, how are we meant to, how is the individual meant to solve it? And I think there are, you know, simple acts that people can do, you know, uh, in, in London at the moment, I was driving to pick up my dad from the airport and they've put in the variable speed limit of 60 miles per hour on the motorway. That being, that's the most economical point for most modern-day cars to drive at, where you get the same amount of, uh, of distance economy on fuel, but also without burning as much. So 
that it's better for the planet but also better for your car um you know agriculture in the uk is is a massive thing they say that we may only have 40 harvests left for uh soil fertility in the uk um but you know we can change our practices and we, and we can make that a bit easier i can see that the eyebrows have raised from matt lee as uh, as he as he, he wants to go on to talk about this more and but there are things that we can do so how do we you know if we were to boil it down for three things whether you know we, we talk about three things for healthcare professionals to do in the workforce but just three things that people can do which you know they're easy to do but and i think that the caveat here is that they're things that people will realize will make a difference because i think turning your lights off and not having your heating on at full blast all the time and you know not speeding in your car and, and not having huge amounts of waste and reuse recycles people realize these things but there are a lot of their big effort items uh in terms of recycling especially to make sure that what actually is being recycled does get recycled uh but what are three things that you think really can make a difference that everyday people can do everyday second nature yeah so all of those things that you just mentioned are like good things to do solving this isn't complicated it's about using less so use less electricity use less water um, take shorter showers all of that stuff will um, have an impact on the environment and will make a bit of a difference but if you're wanting three big knock-on things that can that you can do that are dead easy um firstly have a look at who your energy supplier is um a lot of energy suppliers use uh, uh sort of this thing called a green tariff um which isn't always a completely green um incentive um so they may say it's a green tariff but actually the they're still investing in fossil fuels and they're buying carbon credits as offsets um, to um, say that it's a green tariff. So have a look, there's a couple in the UK that are truly green energy tariffs that only take their electricity and gas from either renewable energy or um, uh, sort of um, partially renewable gas sources. Um, so that's number one. Number two is moving over to a plant-based diet. It's some people often groan and grunt about it. I, I think more fuss is made out of it than is necessary. Um, you don't need to go full vegan. You don't need to go full vegetarian. If you want to, that is great. But actually, the reality is that most people won't do because it's too big a lifestyle change. Now, if you were to consider that if seven people listening to this podcast had one vegetarian day a week then you've created the equivalent of a whole vegetarian eating out uh, having sort of a constant vegetarian diet so just by integrating that um, little change every now and then really makes a difference because um, meat consumption there's nothing specifically wrong with meat consumption it's the way that it's produced in the uk sometimes it can be relatively sustainably but where the issues are when deforestation is happening in the amazon that um, is to grow more soya beans and those soya then gets transported over to the uk to feed our cattle and our um, livestock 
um, and the energy transfer from those soya beans to the cattle, to ourselves, just gets watered down each time. Um, so we would be much better eating the soya directly. Um, and that uses less land area. So eating less meat, definitely a good thing. And lastly, the really, really big one that no one really wants to talk about because it's been very much invested out of us is change your bank account. Um, and it's very easy to switch your bank account um, in the UK. It's set up so that you can do that because a lot of the big banks invest in fossil fuels. Um, there's a very good website called bank.green, um, which um, you type in your bank account. I think it covers most of the world. And it tells you how big an investor in fossil fuels that bank is. Um, and money talks. It only takes something like 5 to 10% drop in footfall for a supermarket to close. So if 5 to 10% of people start moving away from these banks that invest in fossil fuels and write to those banks and tell them, I am leaving you because you're spending money on stuff that's killing the planet, yeah. and move to someone that isn't investing in fossil fuels, though they will start changes and they will divest their funds because they know that they're losing money and money talks at the end of the day so that that to me is the biggest unspoken thing that you can do to that's really um, interesting Matt. that's really budget. interesting i mean the main the main thing i've taken from what you said actually is something that surprises me and that's because we as human beings now with mobile phones and the internet in the palm of our hands all the time we love to research stuff Right, but we're not researching which bank we're using. Why we? That's where we need to focus. Do the backstory check. You know that farm may look like it's a very kind of green farming area, but where is the food coming from? You know, where's the feed coming from? Is that a green process? Um, maybe just be a little bit more in depth with your research. Where does your energy come from? Really, it says it's green, but is it truly green, or is as you say, we're buying carbon credits as an offset so that we can yeah. say it's green? Is the bank account that says everything is green and we're now going paperless yeah. billing and everything, is it really green or is it funding millions of pounds every year into fossil fuel? I think actually just open your eyes is really the biggest story here. Open your eyes and, and look at what you're using and what you're personally um, adding to because you can be doing it without even knowing. Yeah, definitely. And unfortunately, it it's more challenging than that because these companies and these banks try and make it more challenging. Um, so every single bank account website that you um, go on to will say, our sustainability agenda, the planet is at the heart of our priorities and we'll do what we can to um, reduce our carbon footprint by, like you say, making paperless statements or whatever. Um, and oh, in the small print, oh, by the way, we're still investing however many billions of pounds in North Sea oil and gas everything. Um, so you you do have to dig a little bit deeper at times, um, which is why websites that make it simple, like this one, bank.green, um, it really, it just simplifies it. You just type in the bank account, they do all the research, and it gives you a result within yeah. um, within how seconds of, of how <laughs> Ranks all of the worst ones. Yeah, as I well. can imagine so, mine you know, is not so good living in Norway. Most of our government, government money is tied up in offshore oil and gas. Um, so I'm pretty sure we are contributing quite well. Um, I mean, what worries me the most 
is as we look at this as a as, as, as a global problem. Um, why are the most influential people right now, the influential tech giants, why is everyone focusing on leaving Earth to start a new life somewhere else? Why is there so much money and interest being put into, you know, communities living on Mars, for example? You know, because that, that is the, the, the current dream that I'm seeing as the kind of an end user. I sit here and I'm seeing these influential names these hugely powerful beings who can adjust the stock market by one Twitter post or why are these people putting their focus into leaving Earth behind? Have they already given up hope or am I missing something? So this, this is a question that Lydia asks me. Um, Good. <laughs> quite a lot. Um, and I think it's, um, it's an interest, again, it's another interesting point and, you can see there's two aspects to space travel. There is the um, commercial one with the likes of um, Virgin Space or whatever that are planning on trying to take tourists up to the moon and set a colony up on Mars and all that sort of thing. But actually, the the other side to all of that sort of private investor is the governmental investments in things like NASA. Um, and organizations such as NASA are really at the forefront of trying to solve Earth's problems. Um, and if anything, we should be investing more money in in governmental organizations or non-profit organizations specifically looking at um, this area, because what they focus on is um, conciseness and um, sustainability. If they want to send a rocket to the moon, they have to make that rocket from as few materials as possible, make it as light as possible, and create a living environment that is so sparse, so sparse, but livable, and everything has to be done as sustainably as possible. Like the the um, well, Matt, hold on, but, uh, on the Sorry, I was just gonna say the, the space shuttle. You know, if, if we want to talk about you know sustainability, the space shuttle was an amazing you know, feat of engineering. They dropped the the rocket boosters, the, the, the SLS boosters off the side. They landed in the Amazon. The, the the European Space Agency, when they launched from Guiana, also dropped their rockets in the Amazon. You know, we were we used materials which, you know, the 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 the, the tiles which covered which sadly, you know, ended in the space shuttle disaster. Um, you know, these are hard you know, materials to make and to source. You know, space travel is, and I am a space fiend. You can tell I've started to light up. But the um, you know, space is is a very hard environment. They have to use virgin materials. So yes, it's light. Yes, they, you know they're trying to be as economical as possible. But you know the if you look at if you look at the space you know race that we've had for the past, you know we've only been flying for about a hundred and it was, it was nineteen what uh, fifteen sixteen at the right brothers flew so you know it's a little over 100 years we're still at the very infancy of, of flight but i think the big thing is you know of all the satellites in the sky that look to space you know of which the you know, hubble and james webb are the two big ones which you know look out to, to the stars and see what life might be out there most of our satellites look back to earth i think that's where whether it's it's public organizations like uh, NASA or the ESA or even the Chinese Space Agency 
or you know that there are space agencies with the uk as a space agency india as a space agency pakistan has one um canada has one all these countries you know there is limited funding as, as we saw you know in every department the beauty of, of private industry is that it creates a market where smaller scientists can bring their projects to space whether that's on the international space station or whether that's through um one of SpaceX's or, or Blue Origins, which is Jeff Bezos's project, um, and it's allowing science at a citizen level to be included on a global scale. And I think it's just like many things, it is the use of private and public spending, which is where space is, is that new frontier. Um, so I just wanted to jump in there with that. But yes, NASA is amazing. I love NASA. NASA yeah. give me a job, but they do do some, they have not been <laughs> yeah, amazing in the past. Yeah, but Matt, you don't need to send a rocket into space to do that research. That doesn't make space travel good for the planet. That's just being used to to make technology. I think I think we could be in in danger of going into a private versus public sector um, <laughs> argument there, which I think True. we should touch on. Um, but but you you raised a couple of points, and I, I, what I the just going back to the efficiency and. Um, uh, sustainability of spaceships themselves um there's only so much water that you can take on a spaceship and all of that water gets recycled through generators in a very small compact space now that technology took many many years to develop um, and this is just one of many examples one of the easy examples to think of that technology took such a long time to develop now imagine if that was um that technology was incorporated into um, say the UK um, water industry. Um, imagine if all of the water that actually we flushed away down the toilet got recycled and put back into our taps, which is a really strange thought to think of. But it's done in space the whole time, so there's ways that you can do it. And, and on submarines too. But the technology that you know we're making has to come from somewhere. There has to be a catalyst. You know, take modern medicine, take trauma management. The main thing that trauma management has come from is war. It's come from the military. It's come it from is. us having it, battlefield casualties. But what I guess to, I guess this you know, highlights the key issue. It highlights the key issue. That's and very that is true. That climate change isn't up until very recently hasn't been enough of a problem for us to put these kind of interests into. Mm. Um, because then you say that absolutely water regeneration is a huge factor, especially in areas where we're talking about we're going to have a distinct lack of water. Um, these, you know, these technologies can be life-saving, um, town-saving, country-saving solutions that could keep people in a population that could continue to thrive and survive in an area. Um, and maybe we just need to make climate change a little bit more important. I was going to say, with regards to the thoughts of why people have to go into space in the first place, most of our climate data is actually mapped from um, space programs. So a lot of the sort of data on air temperatures, on um, sort of changes in ice levels, that's all done from satellite mapping. Um, and we've had 30 to 50 years of data of all of this thanks to um, the early investment in space programs. Um, so it's just something worth, it, it. it's weird when, because you do say like the engines fall and they crash in the Amazon um or like we're using lots of valuable resources to do these ambitious projects 
but they do have so many impacts in so many ways that totally agree i totally not aware of nasa take me to space i'm ready i'm ready to go it sounds like we've all got slight (laughs) it sounds like we've all got slightly different opinions but i think the main thing that all of us probably can agree on is um that every industry needs to be thinking about sustainability and thinking about the impact they have on climate change because you know from whether it's something that's sending rockets into space to a supermarket to healthcare system every industry and every person really should have it in the back of their mind thinking about what can I do and what can my company do to try to help this massive global problem. Okay so Matt you know you're talking about going from space and you know desalinization uh uh you know and and water recycling and Lydia's like we don't need to go to space you're totally right um (laughs) there was a report that was done when uh, no and you are totally right because that technology has been made available um a report was made about the the royal navy's new uh, submarines they can they don't need to surface anymore they can desalinate their water from the ocean they can recycle all their um their wastewater uh, so the technology exists. It's now about making it publicly available. And part of that comes down to the classified nature of, of certain projects. But those technologies need to be opened up, just like, um, you know, most uh, big military ships, whether they're submarines or aircraft carriers by the United States, are nuclear. We could have nuclear-powered ships, which I know they have their own issues. I know they're not perfect, but they're a lot better than, you know, using fossil fuels to power them. But it's about making these technologies publicly available at maybe not your general consumer level, but to, to other governments and other private uh, corporations, which can then use these technologies, whether it's desalinization, whether it's uh, hydrogen or nuclear powered engines, um, to really catalyze that change. I think that that's the, that's the thing, is sharing the information. Well, guys. It's not but- all lost. It's not all lost. Yes, that's the important message. Is is when it's you know climate doomerism is not is not something that people should uh, subscribe to. But thank you so much. I think we're gonna have to come back, Matt. I think we're gonna have to come back and visit climate change again. I think we're gonna have to do a couple episodes um, on it. And it's good to have it's good to have different opinions. It's good to to have you know uh, a bit of a a debate, not an argument, but a debate. But thank you, Matt, and thank you, Lydia, so much. Guys, thank you ever so much for joining us on another Medicine on the Frontier, a unique expeditions podcast. What an amazing one it was. Really looking forward to the next one. Luke, thanks as always, buddy. Matt, I really enjoyed this episode, and there is definitely so much more we need to talk about regarding our stewardship for our planet. But that will have to wait until next time. To follow along with Matt and Lydia's adventures, check out the description below where you can find all their social media links, as well as the ones for the show. Make sure to subscribe to the show and follow us on Instagram for the latest updates as we now release every other Monday morning. Coming up next time on this series of Medicine on the Frontier, we are heading to the jungle with Scopey from Mad Dog Adventures. He's a British Army veteran who since leaving has fallen in love with the jungle, so make sure you tune into that episode and every other episode in this series as we explore Medicine on the Frontier. <laughs>